0: we built cart.com in a very different way than how a company is supposed to be built. And in hindsight, it was probably a little reckless and risky, but fast forward to today, we're feeling good about that decision.
1: Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast all about startups and growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrakh, and I'm absolutely thrilled to share this episode with you. I got to sit down with my friend and former colleague, Omer Tariq, the founder and CEO of cart.com. If you're not familiar, their growth story has been nothing short of remarkable. The company was founded in the fall of 2020 and hit $150 million in annualized ARR within 18 months. To date, the company has raised $400 million in debt and equity financing and completed nearly a dozen acquisitions. They currently have a roster of over 6,000 brands on the platform, and at last count, a global team of 1,400 employees. I got to know Omer when we were both at Blinds.com, which ended up being acquired by the Home Depot. He later went on to become the subsidiary's CFO and COO. In this episode, Omer shares his experience navigating the Cart.com ship through this period of hypergrowth, leading with vision and growing via acquisitions. We talk about the state of e-commerce and future trends, and what it means to be brand obsessed. But before we can get to all that goodness. Here's a couple of housekeeping items. First, I received feedback that folks felt a little lost with some of the technical terms used in prior episodes. I forget that us marketers love our jargon and TLAs, that's three-letter acronyms, so I will make an effort going forward to define terms not everyone may be familiar with. In this episode, Omer references GMV, which means gross merchandise value or gross merchandise volume. Simply put, that's the amount of product sales a company has. He also uses the acronym ICP, which is ideal customer profile a.k.a. the persona or archetype of the perfect customer. Thanks for the feedback and please do keep it coming. I love to hear from you both what you love and what I can improve about this podcast. My goal with this podcast is to share practical knowledge with startup founders and growth practitioners. If you enjoy this episode, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd leave a rating in Apple Podcasts or share it on social media so others like you can find us. The Product Market Fit Podcast is brought to you by Growth.co. That's growth without the O, Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now on with our show. Omer, great to chat with you. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast.
0: Happy to be here
2: so for those who don't know can you tell us what is cart.com
0: we're the world's first end-to-end orchestrator of technology and operations for brands that are selling across multiple channels easiest way to think about it is that you know the end consumers are becoming increasingly multi-channel where they're shopping on amazon they're shopping on walmart they're shopping on your shopify website they're shopping on instagram snapchat TikTok, you know you name it So the brands and retailers and companies that want to participate in getting access to these audiences, they have to have an infrastructure technologically and operationally that enables that, right? So imagine how hard it is to manage your listings just on Amazon, but when you combine it with walmart.com and target.com and your website and Snapchat and Facebook and the orchestration layer technologically, and then obviously operationally, right, which is how do you actually fulfill the products? across multiple channels is a problem that hasn't been solved yet and requires significant amounts of integration and work and vendors and so on and so forth to do. Unless you're working with Card.com where we come in and basically provide a solution in a box and enable brands to get access to an infrastructure that you know very large companies like Home Depot or Best Buy have.
2: So is your ideal customer a small to midsize e-commerce or D2C brand?
0: The easiest way to think about our business is that if you're a company that is selling something on more than one channel and you're having scale issues, you are our customer. So to specify that, it's typically, I would say brands that are larger than three to five million dollars a year in GMB because it's around that time when they start selling across multiple channels and fulfillment becomes challenging and You can't really like manually manage all of the accounts across multiple different channels. So I would say that's our core ICP that we're really going after. And then we go up all the way to hundreds of millions of dollars of um, brands that work with us. Got it.
2: Very cool. So you and I worked together back at Blinds.com, which was bought by Home Depot. And then you went off to start Cart.com. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going on in, in your life, in your head that led you to start this company and kind of what were those first steps?
0: Yeah. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I've always had really big ideas. And I've always felt like the runways that I could get within an organization have always been like, just not enough. And especially after March, 2020, when COVID hit, it was within that six month period that I decided to start my own company you get very introspective because you have all this time on your hand, right? Because like, you're not driving to work anymore, you're not driving back, you're not stuck in traffic, you're home for lunch. And, you know, if there's an hour break between a meeting, then you know, you can just think about stuff at home, and you're not constantly being barraged by people around you. So I think that gave me like a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do in life and what, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, you know, it was it became like, just conclusive that I wanted to build something and I wanted to build something massive and didn't want to tinker around a small idea. Or I just, I was like, look, if I'm going to do this and I'm going to sacrifice my health and (laughs) my family and, you know, my time and, you know, everything then might as well try to make a big swing. So spend the next, you know, six ish seven ish months while I was still at Home Depot thinking about formulating. A problem statement and thinking about what the world needed that was not solved yet and you know it had always been right in front of us right when we were at blinds.com because the, the platform was why home depot acquired us and then even after the acquisition it was the interconnected platform that was the most valuable thing and the more i thought about it man i was like you know which company in the world is providing a connected platform across operations and technology like and the answer was like zero so just you know, decided to jump without a safety net and uh, it was terrifying, but worked out. <laughs>
2: yeah, well, that's a, a big ambition to jump into. So kudos for that. You've previously described Cart as Amazon meets Shopify. How do you break into a market with such dominant incumbents? It's
0: interesting because And this is partly caused by us because maybe we were not clear on our messaging, but Amazon and Shopify actually have never been competitors to us. Mm -hmm. They're actually very, very important partners of ours. And initially when we were trying to explain to people what we're doing, we used to say, well, we're basically an Amazon-like infrastructure, right? Logistics and technology in a non-marketplace way. And it would immediately create parallels to people saying, well, Shopify is trying to be that with their ecosystem strategy of like having all these apps through which people can have a connected infrastructure. And our thesis over there at that point was like, well, I think the platform war for front ends has been won by Shopify. Pretty much. They own 30% of the websites on the internet numbers only getting larger. You've got big commerce, which is another major player based out of Austin. We love those guys as well. Magento, Salesforce, commerce it's a very commoditized market. So we decided that we don't want to necessarily play on the front end game and compete against them. And we didn't intend to, we've always been the backbone company, which is like the easiest way to think about it is like, we will be the backbone of commerce enablement and the front end could be Shopify or a headless, you know, commerce tools, product or big commerce, we're agnostic to that, but when it comes to everything else, right across what is the orchestration layer between channels or, what is the data layer across channels or what is the operational layer across channels? That's what card.com wants to be. So we're actually very co-existential with Shopify and Amazon. I think in the initial starting of the company, uh, we used Shopify and Amazon because there are no names to like get the point across of what we're trying to do here. But, uh, it's really never been our part, part of our, our strategy.
2: So instead of, directly competing with incumbents, you found a blue ocean to carve out for cart.com where competitors weren't serving the existing landscape and you were able to create a market and create a product that didn't exist. That's exactly
0: right. That's That's been the number one reason why we've grown as fast as we've grown is that there is, like we get asked this question all the time, like, who are you competing against? And we're like, well, so far, nobody. <laughs> Got it.
2: Well, since we're on the topic of Shopify and you know, Amazon and others, your Shopify stock is down 80% from its high, You know, a lot of tech stocks are, but specifically in the area of e-commerce, is Wall Street soured on the category for e-commerce and D2C? What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, look, I think the market's in a pretty serious overreactionary mode right now. And gone from one extreme ditch to the other extreme ditch where Companies that had 10 million ARR were worth 10 billion dollars uh, in 2021, and now companies that have, you know, like Big Commerce, right, is is such an incredible company, 300 million dollars in SaaS sales. I think their stock fell down to valuing them at six, seven hundred million dollars last week, and I was like, "What is this? this? Doesn't even make any sense, right?" So, I think the the market's overreacting, and maybe I don't know if they've soured on the category, but they're certainly very cautious of the category. I do think that there are a couple of things to note here, right? And this is really just me quoting what, what Jeff Bezos said very famously once, which is it's not what's going to change in the next 10 years that we should think about it's what is not going to change in the next 10 years. Right. And look, the consumer is not getting any less digital, right? You've got kids and. Each one of them is on four screens, probably at at the same time, the convenience of the unlimited aisle is not going to go away. So we, we are very, very bullish on the category itself. And we believe that digitalization and commerce enablement is still in the very early innings of what it could become over the next 10 years. Now, I will say that there are some inherent risks when you are a business that is doing just one thing within the commerce enablement stack. And that's risky because if for whatever reason, right, I don't know, markets in a recessionary environment and retailers are saying, you know what, I'm not going to change my platforms right now. Your business gets disproportionately impacted. And this is where like cart.com has been thriving in spite of, you know, just the challenging headwinds where. If you don't want to buy software, we can sell you fulfillment. If you don't want to buy fulfillment, we have our own marketing agency. If you don't want to buy marketing services, we have our own marketplace optimization capabilities, right? Or if you don't want to buy any of that, we have our own unified analytics product. And look, Shopify is a very smart company and we have a ton of respect for them. They're getting into the fulfillment space with their acquisition of Deliver, although they're using a little bit more of a 4PL asset light model for now, at least. But they're, they're thinking about the strategy the right way, the same way cart.com is thinking about it, which is, look, the world belongs to the company that owns a bigger and bigger piece of the commerce enablement stack because it really de-risks your business long term, right? So I think it's a little bit of market overreaction to summarize. I think it's a little bit of just secular trends that we're seeing and uh, a little bit, I think some some of these business models probably need a little bit of evolution.
2: Personally, agree with you on the overreaction side. I think some of these companies are undervalued now and could be great buys. Disclaimer, this is not investment (laughs) advice. You mentioned the different pieces that make up cart.com. And some of these came about through acquisition and some of these you built internally. I think that's one of the most unique parts about Cart.com's story. Obviously, you've done a lot of things really well, grown really quickly. But one of the things that stands out is how many acquisitions you did in such a short amount of time. So I'd love to dive into that strategy if you can give me some of the you know inside baseball, if you will, on how you think about when to acquire a company versus build it internally. And then we can talk about integrating those companies and, and beyond.
0: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because we built cart.com in a very different way than how a company is supposed to be built, and because typically what you do when you build a company is you come up with an idea you build an mvp product you get product market fit you test 30 customers and then you get product market fit again and you expand and you keep right at cart.com we were like okay no we're gonna build it and it will come in hindsight it was probably a little reckless and risky and probably against the grain of how companies should be built but you know Fast forward to today, we're feeling good about that decision because what that allowed us to do is day one, we said, okay, here's the end we want to be at, which is we want to be the end-to-end technology and operational orchestrator at scale for every brand in the world. And in order for us to execute on that strategy, there are going to be pieces that we are going to build as a company. And then there are going to be pieces that we have to buy because it's going to take us too long to build. Now, when we go out to buy certain pieces, what we can't do is have a little bit of a hold co private equity model where like they're not integrated, they're kind of pieces run by different GMs. So day one, we created a very programmatic strategy around, okay, this is the technological architecture that is going to allow us to ingest these different companies and their technologies. And this is how they will actually operate holistically and decompose API layer the front end is going to be Angular and React and the middle layer, which is the core architecture is going to be Node.js because uh, everybody can code in Node.js, right? And and, and then if you're a .NET Core c Python sort of underlying architecture, we decompose the APIs and then use subgraph and graph layers to connect over, over all the architecture, right? And that sort of way to think about like how we're going to build this in the long term allowed us to build a very unique piece of tech that said, you know what, we could actually go out and make acquisitions and not get in trouble as a company. Because we thought about integration programmatically. We thought about the organizational structure very programmatically. And, you know, typically startups, they go out and raise capital and they burn a bunch of capital in building technology or uh, hiring people or building go-to-market functions. We instead invested that money in buying companies that were like EBITDA positive, Right. And which then reduced our burn, actually, versus the opposite. We came with a proven product that was working in the market for a period of time. Founders that were incredibly smart because they had built something from zero to one uh, and believed in the vision of cart.com. That's the whole reason why this sold the company, right? So every company we acquired, we didn't do all cash offers, right? There was a big chunk of equity that was part of the acquisitions because we wanted to test, see if these founders were bought into the vision, right? So it was a very different way to do it. And honestly, like in many cases, it actually created problems for CART because, you know, when we talked to venture investors, they were like, you're a private equity play. And when we talked to private equity guys, they were like, you're a venture play. <laughs> and we were like, well, we're kind of a little bit of a tweener, but like, here's the long term vision, right? So uh, very, very grateful that people ultimately bought the story and backed us. But yeah, there's really nothing normal about the way we built this company. It's, it's crazy how it all came about
2: you some people describe cart as a roll-up in a way do you see it in that regard or is, is that a misnomer
0: man i get offended when people say that because I'm like we're not a roll-up guys because the way i think about a roll-up you know like an amazon aggregator is a roll-up strategy right you buy a bunch of brands you roll them up and you kind of do your thing we are a little bit more of a integrator of capabilities if you may is the way we think about it versus an aggregator of capabilities right so we went in and we didn't quite go out and say, well, here's all the stuff we're going to buy and then we'll put it together. That's a roll up. What we said is like, here's what we want to build. Here are all the pieces we're, like, we have a 220 person technology team, right? Product team. We've invested, I mean, man, like millions and millions, like tens of millions of dollars in like building tech that is net new products, products that bring it all together. So we don't consider ourselves as a roll up, although I can see why people may think that we're a little bit more of an integrator versus an aggregator.
2: Yeah, I think that people just aren't used to the model that you've created and the speed with which, like I said, you've done, what was it, a dozen acquisitions in your first 18 months or something like that?
0: Yeah, we made seven acquisitions in the first 12 months of starting Card. We made another four. There really weren't acquisitions. they were more like aqua hires, if you may. Got it. Uh, the total number is 11, I guess, but really seven real acquisitions.
2: Speaking of acquisitions, in the market that we're in right now, typically in a downturn, you see consolidation. You see more M&A activity, some aqua hires, and other consolidation in the space. How do you see that playing out in the category of e-commerce and e-commerce enablement? And how do you see cart.com playing within that? Market trend.
0: To answer your first part of the question, I think there's going to be pretty significant consolidation opportunities in the next 24 months. And if companies are or have, have ever thought about getting into the broader commerce enablement landscape or being vertically integrated or getting bigger and bigger pieces of the enablement stack, I mean, man, now is the time to do it because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where entrepreneurs and companies that have built great businesses are willing to even talk to you because of the uncertainty that's around, right? In 2021, you know, companies were able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and like, they wouldn't even talk to you unless you had multiple B's attached to the valuation, right? So I think there's a lot of openness and opportunity in the market. And I think companies that are interested and building competitive notes by getting into bigger and bigger pieces of the Congress Enablement stack should be like, looking up and opportunistically participating in some of these things. We're doing the same thing, right? Heart.com is being very opportunistic about what's in the market right now and are thinking about making some aggressive moves. Look, we're still being very cautious, right? We're still an early stage company and don't want to get over our skis in this market where companies like Amazon and Apple and Facebook are laying people off and freezing. We want to be careful that we don't get too drunk on our ambition. But you know, we're definitely thinking about this as a once in a lifetime opportunity to pick up capabilities, assets, consolidate that I don't think is going to come back after this period ends for a long period of time.
2: Got it. So you're growing rapidly both organically and by acquisition, how do you integrate the teams and maintain culture as you're growing so quickly? We talked about technical integrations, which is a big piece of acquisitions, but there's also the, the people aspect of it and the culture aspect of it. And I know that culture is important to you in, in cart.com. So have you run into any struggles there? What have you done proactively in order to ensure that culture remained consistent and remained strong in the way that you wanted to build it while you're ingesting these teams that, you know, they had their own culture, perhaps that maybe wasn't completely aligned with uh, Cart.coms. A
0: couple of things I'll say, right. And this is something I've said before and it's, you know, maybe a little controversial. I don't know if it's been proven out yet, but two years into cart.com, it is certainly looking like it's starting to prove out. Is that people always talk about how culture eats strategy for breakfast. We say that vision eats culture for breakfast and then culture eats strategy for breakfast. So we've added a layer above it where we've created such a compelling vision where there is a real possibility here that over the next 10 years, cart.com could become the backbone of commerce enablement globally. Right, And every brand in the world would talk about us like companies today talk about using Shopify for front ends or Amazon for marketplaces or IBM for computing or for Apple for products. Right, And when you have a vision that even if it's like, I don't know, 2% chance of that happening, people want to play the game and try to make it happen. Right, And I think what we have done in the last two years is honestly nothing short of miraculous because... The amount of execution required would not have happened unless people were in it every single day and and believed in the long-term vision, believed in what they were going to accomplish at the end of this. And I'm just shocked because we've built a company in a covid first environment. we were we were still remote for the most part. We have offices in Austin and Houston and Portland and poland. and but we, you know we don't have like a regular get together right like we used to have at blinds.com or home depot and yet our culture is strong and people care about each other and we do you know crazy virtual things together and you know slack is our town hall and it's pretty fascinating how this has all happened and i i don't think we could have engineered it without like a vision that people believed in and um when you have a vision that people believe in, then the integration kind of just happens, right? The culture just kind of happens. And it's it's been fascinating. And honestly, the, probably the most gratifying part of building this company has been to see how the people we have today like interact with each other.
2: Yeah. You've added some key executives to your team recently and made some really senior and fantastic hires. You know, having that big vision obviously played a big part in attracting these individuals that you know could potentially work anywhere right
0: yeah for sure but i will say man the thing about really smart people is that they have they have really good bullshit meters and the charismatic inspiring pitch gets them to come meet you but it doesn't get them to leave what they're doing and come work for you And honestly, like between our eight leadership team members, we've had like 11 exits between us. So a lot of these people don't even need to work. So why are they here? And I think it's because when you take the vision and you then kind of think about the evolution that ultimately gets you to the revolution and it's very believable and it's very real, there's a trajectory of being able to accomplish it, obviously very hard, very complex, then you're able to attract very good talent, right? I just want to say this, right? Because I think like just the vision in itself would not be enough to get, for example, Gary Spector, who was our president go to market, you know, chief revenue officer of Machento sold the company to Adobe, was head of platform sales for Adobe, like, guy's a legend, right? And it doesn't matter what I come and say to him, he's going to dig in and understand like if this is a real thing and, um, which again is, is really good. I would say evidence that we are really onto something when you have people like him and Michael Slotik, who's our chief product officer who took was always public, um, uh, Frank Parker, who's our CFO who's a global, uh, e-commerce CFO for Pitney Bowes. I mean, you know, these guys are the adults in the room and I always joke about this because you know, I don't have any B2B experience, right? I'm not a B2B SaaS guy. I haven't done commerce enablement in my entire life. I was like an e-commerce guy, right? And, and a D2C guy. And now you know we have this amazing, incredible management team that honestly knows exponentially more than I ever will. But the fact is that they believe in the vision and they know it's real and it's possible to execute on it, and that's what's got them attracted to us.
2: That's incredible. And I like that line: the evolution that gets you to the revolution. I'm gonna jot that, that one down so let's rewind a little bit to talk about fundraising you've raised a tremendous amount very quickly obviously some of that for acquisitions some of that for building out your team and and your technology and your product can you dive into some of the lessons that you've learned along the way as you were raising capital and if you can drill into specifically i know that you did a mix of, of venture financing and venture debt. And I think that that's, again, pretty unique. You know, most founders are, are very familiar with kind of typical equity financing. Venture debt is less commonly seen with tech startups. So if you can kind of drill into that a little bit as well.
0: Yeah, you know, I was a CFO for, for a long period of time and that really helped me think about capital structure and cap tables and, you know, types of financing and cost of capital itself. and you know, they teach you all of this stuff in business school, but I mean, it's like one tenth of what actually is required to be able to figure it out. So I think the, the real life experience there was, was very, very helpful for us to think about it. Number one. Number two, debt financing is typically almost in all cases a cheaper cost of capital, unless, you know, interest rates are 10, 15%, which they're not yet, but, you know, they're heading there and if a company is able to successfully raise some venture debt then they should however there has to be a very specific profile of a company where debt actually comes in and it's kind of weird because you know venture debt actually sits at the top of the cap table so if your company goes out of business they're the first ones that get paid out right so if they put in 100 million dollars and you raise 400 million in total the preferred equity shareholders are below that, so your company has to be worth at least four hundred million billion for them all to get paid, and the common stock people are the ones that you know, are at the end of the stack. So it's kind of counter that the debt financing people actually require the most fundamental analysis of your business, even though they're top of the stack, but it actually allows you as a company to get really sharp about your unit economics, really sharp about fundamentals. Like, you can't go out and be like, okay, here's the vision and we're going to take over the world. Give me 10 million in venture debt. They're going to be like, yeah, no. <laughs> so it almost like forces you to be like sharper about your operating plan and your financial plan for the next three years, right? And to hold you accountable for it. Their covenants run. So this is very serious stuff. So, you know, because of our acquisitive strategy and the fact that we were acquiring EBITDA positive companies, the fact that, you know, our our cash burn was like nowhere near, what some venture-backed startups burn was a very, very, very big advantage for us and allowed us to diversify our sources of capital and ultimately reduce the cost of capital and pollution to the management team.
2: So you can't walk into a bank with a deck and, and wow them on a vision. <laughs> you, you need the numbers, you, you know, need the spreadsheets.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the SBA loan stuff like that probably like, works that way, I think. And I'm glad it does because that's what makes this country an amazing, amazing country but you know, SBA is not going to write a hundred million dollar check to a right. startup, right? So that's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah.
2: So the main theme of, of our podcast is about growth. You talked about some of the key ingredients that led to cart.com's rapid growth, the compelling vision, offering something that is relatively unique in the space and and carving out your own market that didn't previously exist, what else has been key to your rapid growth, any strategies or tactics that you guys implemented that either worked or didn't work early on to get to where you are
0: right now? Yeah, look, we have six core values in, in our company. One of them is brand obsession. And you, we use the word brand obsession and we use the word obsession very specifically kind of like from Amazon's customers' obsession, right? And We said, Hey, look, Amazon starts with the customer and works their way backwards and basically ignores everybody else. Right. We're going to do the same thing, but we're going to do this for the brands. And we did stuff for the brands we work with that I don't think many people do in commerce enablement. Like we would find competitors for certain pieces of the stack, run RFP processes with their competitors, get them into the mix of our stack. Get the best pricing for our brands and tell them, like, hey, you should not use our fulfillment center. You should use their fulfillment center because it's going to be better because of X, Y, and Z. And our brands have been like, wait, you went to your competitor for me and did all this work. Who are you? (laughs) And I think that approach really just helped us create a little bit of a brand about the company and who we are and how we work. And look, we're still a startup and we make mistakes. And there are times when we haven't been amazing to our customers, because not because we wanted to, just because stuff broke, but how we've reacted to those things and how we've handled the way we maintain and manage that relationship has been a big superpower for us.
2: Yeah, that customer obsession piece of your culture, you know, it, it shines through and customer sees that, right? And the brand see that. So you've done some, you mentioned some out of the box strategies that generated customer love. You've done things like out-of-home installations. I remember one you did for uh, Liquid Death, I think it was. Really attention-grabbing stuff. When do you try something new versus when do you run the tried-and-true playbook of B2B SaaS?
0: I'll share another one of our core values as a company. It's called Think Beyond Boxes. It's been like a really important thing from us for us for, for day one. It's actually one of the questions that I ask people um, when I'm hiring them, which is, okay, do you have playbooks that you can bring here or are you good at building playbooks and very important for us that we have people that are good at building playbooks because there's really not a playbook for what we do. Because think about it, right? If we have nine different products, are you going to do performance marketing, retargeting, email marketing, SEO optimization? for all nine of those products for a company that's a startup, like you, you don't have that kind of marketing budget, right? How do you create an outsized impact off your brand and get recognition, awareness, leads, pipeline, MQLs, SQLs, qualified leads when you don't have the budgets like anywhere near what some of the other people in the industry have, right? So we've been very, very non-traditional. I would say the first 18 months, 70, 80% of our marketing was non-traditional marketing, where we would just do crazy stuff, like write love letters to brands and put posters up in Austin about them, or sponsor a van in Vegas during NRF that had all of our brands on it. We've done some pretty wild stuff that has gotten like the attention of some pretty senior people in like really big places. And then those really senior people repost about like, okay, look at this crazy company doing this, and then it just goes viral. So it's been it's been a really i would say interesting approach that we took that has worked for us
2: can you tell me about the evolution of your internal marketing team your growth team what were some of the first hires that you made and how did that team grow
0: i think we have a pretty large marketing team now i think initially we started off with individual contributors to solve very specific problems like around creative or content or brand voice or social presence, we hired some leaders, we evolved very quickly and have matured up a little bit. In the last, I would say six months, we've just brought on Rachel Tour as our chief marketing officer. She comes from Confluence and I mean, she is amazing and she brings a significant level of experience to our business. And, you know, it's like, we're now in the process of like, I would say systematizing how we do marketing, right? Because we're big enough, right? With hundreds of millions of revenue thousands of brands and almost 1600 employees like this willy nilly approach of like going out and like putting posters is like not going to be the thing that gets us to the next level right so we have to get a little bit more scientific about about what we do so i think that's the biggest i would say change that has happened in the last six to nine months is that we've gotten very scientific about how we do marketing and uh, at the same time right we are not losing our soul of like okay we are you know, viral marketers. We are going to continue to try and do things that get the brand in front of people and make it impossible for you to ignore us, right? If you share something before you start recording, which is like, man, you're making an announcement every week, it feels that's part of the strategy, right? We're like, we're just not going to slow down. We don't care if there's like doom and gloom in the markets. We're going to keep doing stuff and signing partnerships and doing crazy things. And why? Because it's virtually impossible to ignore us at this point.
2: Yeah. I mean, kudos to you. Pedal to the metal. C- keep it going. So marketing is one of the pieces that you offer and obviously key to your growth and, and key to the brands that you serve. We've seen major changes with, especially with privacy, You know, Apple blocking third-party pixels and that causing shift away from facebook and recent earnings calls you know snap is is way down and facebook's way down google's even down where do you see marketing going in this new environment how are brands going to adapt to this new normal if you will
0: my thought on this is a little bit biased because of what we do as a company to take what i say with a grain of salt but we believe that the era of personalization is ending it's ending because of privacy issues, data issues, which is obvious to a lot of people. But it's also ending because the end consumer is shopping everywhere, right? They're on TikTok, they'll shop something there. They're on Snapchat, they'll buy something there. They're on Facebook, they'll buy something there. They're on Instagram, the website, you know, marketplaces like Amazon, Target, Walmart, eBay. And we believe that in order for you to win the game around customer acquisition, you have to be available in every possible channel, because if you are by definition available in every channel, you're getting more access to the eyeballs that are looking at your product and you're increasing the chances of awareness and the availability of your product. And you have to get smarter that way. Look, I think there's still a very important place for personalization. Once people do come to your website, or once they have given some information to you, they have shop from you. So I'm not discounting that, but I do believe that new customer acquisition, the, you know, the stuff that we used to work at Home Depot, the cohort analysis, lookalike analysis, we believe that that stuff is getting outdated very quickly because the tools that allow you to do it is for prospect customers are getting increasingly unavailable. So what do brands do? Well, brands should use something like cart.com to deploy their products in every possible channel, and we can help you do that.
2: I like the plug there. I know we're uh, running out of time here, so I just want to end off with a quick lightning round, a couple of questions, the first thing that comes to your mind, if you'll uh, indulge me.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: Okay. So what's one productivity habit that you swear by?
0: You have a not to-do list.
2: A not to-do list. Okay. Love it. A book or podcast that you've read recently that you'd recommend to others?
0: Man, I read a lot more quotes that inspire me to think about building the next big thing than I ever did before. And, you know, Elon Musk once famously said that, if you want to be inspired, don't become an entrepreneur. He's right. Like being an entrepreneur and building a business is like the hardest thing in the world and there's nothing sexy about it. So like, guess what I have to do every day? Wake up, inspire myself and, and and read quotes that get me excited. So I think just quotes and looking at the successes and failures of people and just reading about those things has been like the, probably my go-to for the last couple of years. Very cool.
2: One thing that you bought this year for under a hundred dollars that's changed your life.
0: I was going to say AirPods, but they were a little bit more than, more than a hundred dollars, man. I'll take it. Oh my God. AirPods are like the world. I have like two of them. Like that's how much I love them.
2: Okay. What's one piece of terrible advice that you've received along the way?
0: Um, Advice that I have received along the way. Don't worry about cash. Capital is going to stay forever.
2: Okay. And then what's one piece of advice that you have for founders?
0: Man, just don't give up like that's actually another one of our core values. Don't give up because I don't think that companies fail because of bad ideas. I think companies fail because you gave up on turning a bad idea into a good one. So I think as long as you keep tugging along in building what you want to build and adapting and evolving and iterating. You'll build a very large company over time. It doesn't matter what your idea is. It doesn't matter what space you're trying to build in. Just get up, start doing, and keep doing it, and just don't stop.
2: Mary you said entrepreneurship isn't inspiring, but I'm inspired after talking to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and it was so good to see you again, and I wish you well.
1: You too. Glad to see all your success and going to continue watching it. Thanks so much for joining us. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Either way, I'd love to hear your feedback. Hit me up via email at hello at pmfpod.com or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter to tell me what you thought of the show, how we can make it better, or specific guests that you think I should have on. Hit that follow or subscribe button so you get notified when we release new episodes. In coming weeks, we're going to have Sam Schepler to talk about customer storytelling and scaling tech-enabled services, Rajesh Nurlikar, explaining what vision-led product management is, and Sarah Well and her mission to make healthcare more efficient and humane. If you love this podcast and want to join me for the ride, I'm hiring for production, editing, and social media roles. And finally, don't forget to check out growth.co if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.